90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, I am hot and tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the weather out there has been pretty brutal for camp. Oh, man, I think we got up to 95 today, and it was pretty rough. Um, But I will say we got some afternoon clouds, as we normally do, and so by about 3 o'clock it cooled down to a balmy, you know, 90, so (laughs) it was nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we've had some very... uh, hot, humid showers here recently as well. It makes it just like a human vegetable steamer. Oh, yeah. They're no fun. No fun at all. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What have you been up to in your cave? (laughs) Well, I actually got out of the cave. Uh, I was up at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in uh, Woods Hole, Massachusetts for the the last part of last week and so i got to i gave a talk and got to tour around some i got to see alvin the submersible you know the one that uh, went to the titanic that's awesome yeah so yeah no there's there's a lot of really cool stuff up there but alvin was definitely one of the highlights because i've known about it and seen it on you know tv since i was pretty small uh is he just on display like I, i mean here at ou you know we have all the all the little dorothys from twister on display is that how alvin is that's how i imagine it no, Alvin is uh, still a working submersible. It was just revamped oh. uh, not too long ago. So actually, it was in for routine maintenance, but apparently it's a kind of a rarity to get to see it in the shop. Most of the time, it's on the Atlantis and out at sea. Oh, super awesome. Oh, that's cool. Excellent. Yeah, so I was just fortunate that it was there that were there for maintenance and got to, uh, to, got to go in and see it. I will tell you, it was a lot larger than you think it is. Really? Yes. Uh, the, the, the sphere in the front where all the people are is about six and a half feet in diameter. Oh, wow. So standing in front of it, it, it was on some rollers, but standing in front of it, it was very large compared to me. I would have not said that. It's like the opposite. Like when you go to visit the white house and it looks so much smaller than you imagine. Right. Yeah. I now, I don't think the the crew compartment inside would feel that big yeah. if you were able to get in it. But of course, we weren't able to do that. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> seeing it seeing it in the in the shop is pretty awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that was that was great, and got to see all kinds of fun stuff. And now I am uh, back in town for about a week, and then I'm going to be on the road basically through the end of July. So that's going to make recording quite a bit of fun. Oh goodness. Um. Well, you know, it's always. It's always exciting during this travel season to try to record this stuff, as you uh, as you heard earlier, but the audience didn't hear. You know, I had my headphones up in my room, thought I lost my microphone. It's it's crazy stuff in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought the topic that you picked for this week was actually really great because you've already mentioned it, and it's something that a lot of folks are going to experience this time of year, which is uh, you know rain on. The, the leeward side of mountains, and it's going to introduce a lot of words that sound like we completely made them up. <laughs> exactly. So that's what meteorology is all about, and, um, and geology too. And one of those first words that we're going to talk about is the perfect melding of geology and meteorology. And that's where we both live. So we're going to talk first about orographic lift. And so that word, orographic, in geology, we call mountain building events orogenies. And so orographic lift is a meteorological term that says you've got air, it warms up on those sides of the mountains, it rises up the mountain, so therefore this air is lifted because there's a mountain there, orographic lift. 
Right. And so you'll hear us use words like uh, Lee and Stoss. So the Stoss <laughs> side of the mountain is actually just the windward side of the mountain. And the Lee side of the mountain is the, the other side of the mountain. So we're going to be talking about mainly these upslope winds on the, the Stoss side of the mountain. So it heats up and you get winds that are uh, going up the slope, causing lifting of air. And we all know what happens when you lift warm, moist parcels of air. Rain. <laughs> <laughs> right. So as you lift them, they, they cool off along what we would call an adiabatic cooling curve. And eventually, condensation will happen if there's enough moisture and you lift them enough, and we can get uh, rain and storms. Right. And I mean, some of these can be fairly significant. So just like you said, these upslope winds are where all this starts. And I learned a new word while researching this, and that is that these upslope winds are called anabatic winds. Did you know that one? I, I didn't. And it makes sense, I guess, because in a little bit, we're going to talk about catabatic winds, as exactly. that would be the, the nice complement to it. Exactly. Uh, but no, I hadn't heard it referred to that as before, just as upslope. So as these warm air parcels rise, they cool off adiabatically, and they condense into clouds, and sometimes you can get these awesome rainstorms that you see. But I think we probably need to describe what adiabatic means. Yeah, so adiabatic just means that heat is not transferred into or out of the system. So we would, we would say that heat flux, which we always write mathematically as Q, is zero. So as this parcel is ascending, it's expanding, and it cools, but we're neglecting any kind of heat transfer that's going on. Uh, so that generates different lapse rates. There's a, a moist and a dry adiabatic lapse rate. And do you know those off the top of your head? No. <laughs> <laughs> so these, these are good numbers to kind of keep in your pocket. The, the dry adiabatic lapse rate is 9.8 degrees Celsius per kilometer, which it's relatively easy to remember because it's the same number, different unit the, as the acceleration of gravity. Yeah, yeah. And then about half that is the moist adiabatic lapse rate. We're having to deal with being able to heat up and cool down the water vapor. So the lapse rate is 5 degrees Celsius per kilometer. Right. Exactly. So as these guys rise, condense into clouds, and therefore you get a lot of rain on one side of the mountain rather than the other, right? Um, and that's why how mountains affect weather. So there's a certain side of mountains that you want to be on if you want to get more rain. And we'll actually talk about this here in a little bit, how they affect climate um, in terms of desert formation. But I think before that, we can talk about the opposite of anabatic winds, which is a more common term, I think, um, that we're used to, which is catabatic winds. Right. So these are downslope winds. So you get uh, cooling of the air parcels at the top of the mountain, and then just by uh, gravity or buoyancy, they're actually driven down the side of the mountain. The catch is, as they're going down the side of the mountain, they compress and they warm by adiabatic compression. But this adiabatic compression, now they've dumped a lot of their moisture. Now it's the dry adiabatic lapse rate, which is 9.8 degrees per kilometer. So for every kilometer they come down the mountain, they're getting almost 10 degrees Celsius warmer. So this causes these very warm rushes of air. Exactly. And so these guys can really get to moving and they're really hot, um, hot, relatively speaking, winds. And the, in the western part of the U.S., these are known as Chinook winds. And there's actually quite a bit of Native American folklore that goes along with these Chinook winds. And they're often still called snow eaters today because we just said 
dry adiabatic lapse rate, the air's dry. So if it comes down the mountains, you got a lot of snow on the ground, it's a warm, dry air, and it just takes that snow and evaporates it into nothing. Uh, there's also another word for downslope winds or catabatic winds, which is called fain. It's not spelled that way. It's spelled F-O-E-H-N um, because these also happen frequently in Europe where you have really large mountains. Obviously, you get a lot of these downslope winds that create, create a lot of very interesting weather. Right. And these can cause some pretty significant local changes in a short period of time, right? Uh, yes. And so, you know, I've, I've looked at sort of the stories that follow around Chinook winds because I teach that in part of my class, um, sort of the old West way of describing these Chinook winds is that, um, you could be driving through them with your, um, with your horse and the horse's nose is in the snow and his back legs are in the mud and his tail is blowing up dust because that's what it does to the landscape. And this happens in a really short amount of time, just like you just said, John. Um, and the greatest recorded temperature change from one of these Chinook winds um, in 24 hours, and it happened in 1972 in Montana, the temperature rose from minus 48 degrees C to 9 degrees C. Wow. So for those of you that don't think in Celsius, that's minus 54 degrees Fahrenheit to 48 degrees Fahrenheit. It's nearly 100 degrees in 24 hours. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's crazy by Oklahoma standards. <laughs> well, that's funny that you mentioned Oklahoma, because this is something that's really interesting, too. Oklahoma, you think a lot about mountains when you think about Oklahoma? Generally not. No. I mean, we've got some mountains, but we actually get the effects of Chinook winds coming off the Rocky Mountains in the panhandle of Oklahoma. So, I mean, this is an effect that can extend for hundreds of kilometers. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I've actually got a link in here, and we've talked uh, on the show a lot about the um, mesonet in Oklahoma, and they put out a little mesonet ticker, which sort of explains some interesting weather events. And I've put one up here from 2011, which was a Chinook event in February that we felt, and we had about a, it was a modest temperature increase. It was, you know, 10 to 20 degrees in some of the places in the panhandle, but you could actually see it in the mesonet data and that was from a chinook event and so it's kind of it's kind of interesting that it could occur the mountains the rockies are affecting the weather in the panhandle of oklahoma yeah that really is uh and like you said if you don't subscribe to the ticker we'll put a link to that as well oh in absolutely. the show notes it's uh, always got some something interesting whether you live in oklahoma or not uh, uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it's totally worth the read as always it's hilarious. Um, but we've also linked in, so speaking of some of these, I've just sort of focused on um, Chinooks because I talk about them a lot. That's not the only catabatic wind process. And I know we've talked about it before when we talk about glaciers or things like that. But um, the Chinook winds also create some cool clouds. Yeah, so you can get to these, uh, these very marked clearing lines from the subsidence of the, the air coming down the side of the mountain where you can have at just really razor edge sharp lines where the clouds disappear and it looks pretty wild. It's kind of like a like a cloud bulldozer essentially with that dry air bulldozing the clouds out <laughs> yeah, in front of it. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how I imagined it. So you're losing the snow and it 
and you're also bulldozing all the clouds out. Um, it, you should absolutely, if you haven't seen these, you should absolutely Google this and just some of the clouds over Colorado and Canada, they're really cool looking after these uh, Chinook wind events. Yeah. Well, and there's another cool cloud that's seen a lot around mountains that I know is one of your favorites. <laughs> I love lenticular clouds. I've seen so many this summer and they make me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So these I are kind of those, um, I, I, how do you describe them? UFO looking clouds? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I always say to people. Um, I actually have a couple of students this summer who are really interested. Um, they made it through a semester of meteorology, but that was about it. And they're really interested in learning the clouds. And we got some really great lenticular clouds that formed over Pikes Peak last week. And yeah, it just looks like some of them, if you get lucky enough, you get these stacks and they just look like a whole bunch of UFOs hovering over a mountaintop doing God knows what to the people up there. <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you know, you kind of are close to the, the NORAD facility out there. So <laughs> exactly. <you never> know. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, John. It's really scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, this is a great, um, a great internet hole to get sucked into is looking at mountain cloud formations because there's quite a variety and they're really neat. Yeah, so these are just kind of you, the wind's coming, it hits the, the feature, gets lifted, and sets up this gravity wave, this oscillation. Uh, so this cloud is continually forming and being destroyed at its edges, but it looks like it's stationary. So the, the actual name for them is Alto Cumulus Standing Lenticular, or ACSL, <laughs> but you'll never hear anybody call it that. Oh, you sure won't. I wasn't going to get that nerdy even. <laughs> But yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and that explains why, you know, some of them, you can have really a whole bunch of them stacked on top of each other. Um, and you can also, this isn't just a mountain feature. You can also see these form on the top of overshooting tops on some supercell thunderstorms too. Yeah, exactly. And those, uh, I wouldn't say it's incredibly common, but it's really cool to see when it happens. Uh, yeah, it really is. It just looks like a thunderstorm wearing a hat. But um, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, probably a little bit <laughs> yeah. different. But <laughs> That see, this is where right. this is where geology and meteorology come together, right? This is the perfect, the perfect melding of the two of them. Exactly. Well, and then the the meteorology can actually influence uh, the setting or the uh, the climate of a local area and maybe change the geology of the area as well, right? Uh, right. So um, another thing when you talk about meteorology in terms of looking at mountain ranges, you'll hear something called the rain shadow. And so that's, you know, the leeward side of mountains, the sides that don't get a lot of rain. And this can have really big climate implica implications because it actually factors into desert formation. Right. And there's all kinds of really cool processes that happen in the desert or exposed in the desert, I should say, uh, right. that we can look at and talk about. But this is a summer short. <laughs> Fine, I'll quit talking about the cool clouds I look at all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this desert formation stuff is really neat. We're definitely going to get back to that. Um, and then if you want to look back in geologic time, something that we both do all the time, you know, mountains weren't always in the same place as they are now. And so that could affect what rocks you had deposited, where the ancient deserts were, produces some of the most beautiful rocks in the world are these big desert sandstones, you know, that you see in the Grand Canyon and stuff, but that is for another time. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> 
which I think means, man, these summer shorts always seem to go by so fast. But <laughs> I know <laughs> it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> and I, I will say, you, you picked this one again, and it is excellent. <laughs> um, I I love it. Um, I I feel like I need to, you know, pull pull my share of the pull my share of the weight on this podcast since John does so much of the editing. And so I sit around thinking about this stuff a lot. And I will say that this, this paper has to do with a lot, using a rock hammer and falling down lots of <laughs> scree slopes this summer. And the paper is swearing as a response to pain, <laughs> effect of daily swearing frequency. <laughs> <laughs> and it's by Stevens and Umland from, uh, from Staffordshire in the UK. <laughs> Well, and, and before we even get into the content, it is in the Journal of Pain. <laughs> I feel like we've done stuff from this journal before, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to look into it more after reading this paper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think you could say, you know, any journal is in some form a journal of pain, but this is actually the Journal of Pain. And uh, I think that... Yes, especially during field work, but even, you know, people that live in their little cubicles like I do a lot uh, and write a lot of computer code, we understand that sometimes you just have to swear <laughs> to get past something. <laughs> um, so I will say this is sort of a follow-up to some of their previous research, which I, I'm going to go read this previous research as well. And um, their first article had to do with just trying to induce pain and by swearing, it actually has a pain lessening or hypoalgesic effect um, for many people. But th they did this follow-up study because one of the questions they got a lot was, okay, so saying a swear word when you're being in pain-induced, which in this case it was keeping your hand in a bath of cold water, saying a swear word actually decreases the amount of perceived pain that you feel. But one of the questions was, does this matter for people who swear a lot? Which is an interesting follow-up right. question. <laughs> so do you get kind of immune to the benefits of swearing? Exactly. Um, which I will say, this is sad for me because I am a habitual swearer. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, as the editing attests to yeah. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> as I apologize for John's numerous amounts of editing that he has to do um, exactly so this is really interesting they, they had people you know put their hand in an ice water bath for on average they said like people that were allowed to swear could do it for 40 seconds longer compared with people who were not allowed to swear and were only allowed to repeat a non-swear word and I thought that was significant. I mean, that's almost a full minute longer, just if you're allowed to sit there and say your favorite curse word. Right. And I thought the way they did this was interesting. Well, first of all, they used 71 undergraduates. But <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> they, uh, they also asked them, before they told them what they were going to be doing, and they were just asking them some general questions, uh, they said, you know, if you hit your head, uh, what swear would you use? And then name or you know, tell us a word that you'd use to describe a table. And so then whatever they answered, that was their swear word and their non-swear word that they would use. And they would just sit there and repeat them at about the same rate over and over with their hand in this bath of cold <laughs> water, uh, which 
I know that doesn't seem like something that can induce pain, but it definitely can. Uh, yes. Um, I thought of the 71 participants, it said that there was a five minute limit imposed on the trials and nine participants actually reached this limit. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I would go for the full five minutes or not. I don't think uh, I could too. <laughs> uh, that one I sat there and looked at for a while and I was like, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, so they, they broke this out, you know, that I thought this was interesting too, that the majority of the, um, participants were female actually, or 49 females and 22 males. So they, with an average age of 22 roughly. Um, and so they did a lot of statistics with this. There was a lot of statistics that derived from this. Um, they had people fill out, I love this name, um, the name for their pain catastrophizing questionnaire. <laughs> that was hard for me. So they had people fill out this, this questionnaire before and a fear of pain questionnaire before so they could get sort of a baseline, you know, how susceptible are you to pain? How much do you fear pain? And then they did this perceived pain scale immediately after they did their submersions. Right. Uh, and then they also just ask them flat out, how many times a day do you think you swear? <laughs> uh, so that was self-reported, which, which could skew things a little bit. Um, but one interesting thing was, you know, that one of their things that they could have tested uh, was, does this effect work better for males versus females or the other way around? because uh, they think it's somehow tied to fight-or-flight response, and some folks have suggested that that's stronger in one sex or the other, depending on conditions and all mm. these other things, which, with with a small sample size, I think it's pretty hard to say anything. Uh, but they didn't find a significant difference between males and females. Right, and I thought that was interesting, because they did point out a lot that, you know, males are generally thought of to be more aggressive, and they thought that there would be a significant difference. Um and I feel like maybe that there is room for this to be moved forward, too, to look at this, because that was a pretty different finding than they were expecting. Yeah. I mean, they definitely say at the end that there's more research warranted and all of these kinds of things. But, uh, I mean, maybe next time you hit your thumb uh, with a rock hammer, it's <laughs> it's worth it just to, to sit there and have a good 30-second little tantrum to yourself because exactly. apparently it could actually help reduce the pain. It could. Um, I, I will read this part in talking about how it does reduce pain because they concluded um, a, a previous study, Pinker, had concluded that swearing aloud may tap into deep and ancient parts of the emotional brain. And I thought that sounded very satisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, this was an interesting little paper, and like I said, there's a bunch of statistics stuff, so if you're really into that, this is definitely the paper for you, and um, go ahead and let that loose, and it does you good, tapping into your deep, emotional, primordial roots. Yeah, and I would have been interested to see what words people chose, but unfortunately that data is not included. <laughs> Man. <laughs> I thought that too when I read that. That made me really sad. I mean, I have I have a lot of words. I don't know if I could just choose one. Hey, like the words that we discussed earlier, some of them <laughs> may sound made up. <laughs> exactly. I'll be sure and add anabatic into my swear word repertoire. <laughs> oh, can you tell I've had too much sun today? <laughs> right. Huh. Well, I think that was an excellent find, 
And I do have a few listener fun papers queued up as well that I promise we will get to here in the, the very near future. But if you have a fun paper idea that you would like us to talk about or any kind of feedback to send us or something you'd like to hear us talk about on one of these summer shorts, maybe something that you don't understand and would like to hear explained, uh, you should go ahead and send that to us. And Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, you can always find me posting some cool mountain cloud pictures uh, at Shannon Doolin. Uh, John is at geo underscore Lehman. And together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 